It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. You know what I mean? It just doesn't compute, you know? The law is the law. Peter, this is in our hands. I mean, it really is. People were there. We will continue to raise our voices. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. So it's Friday and the Taoiseach will be speaking at 6 p.m. approximately. He'll come down them steps and deliver another speech. What will we get? Well, you've been hearing snatches of it in the news bulletins all morning. It's all over your newspapers, this kind of ready reckoner and that kind of ready reckoner. Basically, the only thing to come out of it that's really, really new is the 5th of July. A lot will start to happen on the 5th of July. Now, as of this morning, they're not confirming it yet. That all has to be rubber stamped and nailed down. But from the 5th of July, the pubs and the restaurants will be able to open indoors. There'll also be some people that'll go to matches. And between two and 500 people will be allowed to go to a match. I'll just go through it as we know it from the top. Yesterday we were chatting in some detail with Adam Higgins from the Irish Sun. And to be fair to him, once again, Adam is pretty much on the nose as to where we're going. Although Neffet's meeting with the government last evening went a little better than I think people were expecting. Neffet are inclined to let certain things happen quicker than we thought they might, with the exception of the the indoor dining and drinking. So, starting on the 2nd of June, we know this one, hotels are opening. Uh, indoor dining there, indoor drinking there. Tish, or the Thonish Druthers, been speaking about that this morning. Interesting point that he makes, but I'll get to it in a sec. On the 7th, the bars and restaurants will open outdoors. Uh, new to this list is cinemas, and I think theatres as well, able to open, obviously with small, socially distanced crowds. But cinemas and theatres to be allowed open on the 7th of June. Gyms and pools will open again with limits. There'll be no group classes. It'll be all individual training on the 7th of June. And from the 7th of June, 
25 people can attend a wedding. Some small crowds also to be allowed at sport, adult sport. Some small crowds. Uh, they're going to get moving on that across the duration of the summer. Moving forward then to the 5th of July. And this is the date that we didn't have yesterday. Even though Adam said uh, in his predictions to me yesterday morning, we would get one. Uh, He just wasn't able to put his finger on it there and then, but he said it would be in early to mid-July. There would be a date given this evening. It turns out that date will most likely be, subject to them rubber stamping it at Cabinet today, the 5th. So from the 5th of July, uh, indoor dining and indoor pubs. With, of course, a set of terms and conditions. We were through some of those yesterday. The 105 minutes will be back for indoor dining. And probably for the pubs as well, even if you're not eating in the pubs. You don't have to have the €9 meal. But we think that the 105 minutes will be still there indoors. Gym classes can resume from the 5th of July. And from the 5th of July, and these are all, of course, pending that uh, we don't have any strange upsurges in case numbers or that this Indian variant doesn't get out of control. And this is assuming that we can continue to keep vaccinating thousands of people, 50 people at weddings and up to 50 people at indoor events will be allowed from July 5th. July 19th, we'll see the return of indoor travel. Um, indoor travel, international travel. Good Lord, PJ, it's Friday. International. My excuse for any mistakes this morning will be, by the way, that I had my second jab yesterday and I'm a little bit flat this morning. I'll tell you more about that during the morning. I'm a small little bit flat having had my second jab yesterday, but it's all normal. It's all normal. International travel from July the 19th. You can go on your holly bobs and holly bobs can come here. Initially from the European Union, there'll need to be vaccines and there'll need to be PCR tests and and all of that. In August, 100 people at a wedding and up to 5,000 at a game or 25% capacity of the stadium, whichever is lower. Now, that's a strange one because we're supposed to have All-Ireland semi-finals and finals in August and the capacity of Croke Park is 82,000. So that's 5,000 in 82,000. 20, 25% capacity in Croke Park will be more like 20,000. But that will be clarified, I suppose, closer to time. Taoiseach to speak at 6 this evening. All of this, of course, subject to change. These are what they call these moving documents. But just before I go to a break, because I want to talk a little bit more about the pubs, the Tánaiste was on RTE's Morning Ireland this morning. And, of course, he's business minister. And Leo Bradker was being asked about this difference between the opening of hotels indoors and the opening of others outdoors. And, as you know, there's a dissatisfaction, to say the least, between the the various sectors of hospitality in that the publicans and the restaurants are looking at the hotels saying, hang on a second, they can open five days before us and then we can only open outdoors when we get to open. What's the story there, Sham? Well, to be fair to Leo Varadkar, he said this this morning, and I had forgotten this. And I'm wondering, does it make any difference? This was him speaking, as I said, on RTE's Morning Ireland. So he was asked about whether it was fair that hotels were A, able to open a little bit earlier, or that B, hotels could have people indoors, eating indoors, and drinking indoors. And the pubs and restaurants couldn't. 
Here was his answer. You know, hotels have always been able to serve meals to their guests. Um, even during the worst period of the pandemic in level five, hotels uh, were able to provide meals in the dining, dining room for uh, their guests. We never required them to eat in their rooms uh, and we're not going to change that now. There is very clear scientific evidence that outdoor is much safer than indoor. Um, the disparity, I suppose, is that a difference is being made for hotels. Um, how are we going to correct that and compensate for that? We're going to continue to pay the CRIS payment. Uh, that's the weekly payment for businesses that are closed. We're going to continue to pay that uh, to um, restaurants and pubs, even when they open outdoors. Uh, so hopefully that'll help a bit for those few weeks. It's only a few weeks. I'd forgotten that, that hotels were always open for essential workers and essential travel and that you could eat while you were there in the dining room. So they're not actually changing anything with the hotels. I wonder does it cut any mustard with the various sectors. Next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork cream. The Cork's 96FM music panel gives you the power to pick our playlist. Click 96FM.ie now. 96FM.ie now. Take the 10-minute survey and you could win a 100-euro shopping voucher. The power to pick what we play. Pick what we play. Join the Quark's 96FM music panel. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or see 96FM.ie. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Quark's 96FM. So that's the bones of where we are. Uh, with this and the explanation from the Tarnish to this morning of why the hotels will be allowed to serve indoors a few days earlier, in fact a few weeks earlier, is quite simply that they've been allowed to serve throughout this, even at the worst of times. I wonder does that cut any mustard because the Restaurants Association of Ireland are threatening legal action uh, on the sequence of events, the sequence of of opening this data and the other. Mike Ryan uh, from Cockbull is the Cork rep from the Restaurants Association. Mike, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How are Does, you? Good. Does that cut any mustard with you, Mike, that hotels have always been able to serve indoors, even at the worst of times? No, I understand the rationale there, PJ, to be fair, but that's when they were open for essential services. Um and the numbers were greatly reduced. They're going to full capacity. They're going to, the rooms are going to be full. The hotel's going to be full. This isn't about hotels, by the way. Like I'm delighted hotels are opening. It's a great sign that the sector is starting to open up. I suppose it's just very hard for us to weigh up as an organisation that, you know, they, they'll be able to run at full capacity uh, with their restrictions in place, obviously. But indoors, we're, it's very hard for us uh, as, uh, as a group to operate uh, like we're we have to just check the weather every day to see how we're going to operate you know um, what, who we need to bring on for the day because if it's going to be raining we're not going to be more or less open yeah. um, and, and I suppose that, that's that, like we're just asking why like, there is no scientific proof they're saying it was always done like this well, it has been across most parts of Europe. In fact, we were talking on, was it Monday or Tuesday, to Audrey Leaves, who's from Cork, but has a pub in Hamburg. And she said they don't expect to be open indoors until September. So it is across the board in Europe that outdoors 
goes first? Yeah, different countries yeah, operate differently, and I suppose, but if you look at the UK, like I suppose, you know, for different elements, we look at the UK for good or bad, you know, and we see we take different things out of it, but when they reopened their sector, they opened uh, hospitality, the hospitality side of it first, and hotels weren't left open first, because the, their rationale was that if you open hotels, you're going to have people travelling around mm. to the hotels and areas, mm. um, but then you're going to have, for us, there's no, there's nowhere to go. But they still they went did. outdoors first, Mike, with the restaurants and pubs. Correct, they, they did, yeah. So that meant that people went out and got that pent-up energy out of their system first before they went travelling because they couldn't go to different locations. They had to stay local, but their areas were open and they were given a clear clear guidelines to when they were opening six, eight weeks out, what they, they could plan. I suppose all along, that's all we've all we wanted was clarity and it was only up to yesterday evening we didn't know if we were, we were indoors or not at any stage we didn't have a date now at no. least we have a date like, yes. you know, you know we're, we're, we're delighted that we have a date but I suppose our argument is that you know what's the difference between like we have our, in, in our council there are people that actually there's people have hotels and restaurants and they have they, they've openly said that their restaurant is bigger than their hotel restaurant room Mm-hmm. You know, and they're mm-hmm. separate standalone restaurants. So it just—it's just to weigh that up. Like I know what they're saying. Um, I know it has to be on a phase basis, but you know, like just call it as it is. Just don't be trying to justify it with a bit of a piecemeal ex- example. Yeah. It's not. It's—it's it's, they're opening to full capacity, um, whereas restaurants, you know, are not deemed mm-hmm. to be safe inside um, straight away, like. Just like we all, all we are looking for is to work on a level level playing field yeah. when it comes to operating our business. And you have indeed got a fair point. Like even when you were able to stay in a hotel during level five, it had to be a, a proper booking, and it had to be for essential reasons and that kind of thing. So, and and obviously the capacity of the hotel was much reduced. So that's a very 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 valid point. So, do you think, Mike, that this legal action will actually come to pass? I suppose I can't. I don't know. Um, it's um, as the saying goes, it's probably above my pay grade. Um, I don't know what, what's going to happen as yet. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're the Cork rep, you're, you're on the well, exec. Well, you're discussing yeah, it, surely. We will be discussing it at the, but it hasn't. I suppose it, it's kind of in play at the moment that people are looking at it and see. But it, up to yesterday, we didn't have a date. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the fear we have is that had was that, like, if we have a date, if we didn't have a date, you know, is it going to be the start of July, end of July, right. or what so, case scenario... So, so does the date take some of the heat out of it, then? I would, yeah. It would, that, like, we need clarity. We just, every like, all we've ever asked for, PJ, is clarity. That's yeah. it. You know, it, it's just like, it's like running, like running a business. You need to have metrics to work towards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and in fairness, everyone's been saying that for weeks. Just give us something to work towards rather yeah. than us f- f- fooling around in the dark, as it were. Now, one thing that Tarnish also said this morning was that the, the supports such as they are that you're getting right now, they will continue while you're open outdoors. Does that help? That's, that, look, that's helped all along and I think I don't think anyone's going to take away from the government supports for businesses uh, and, and, and the public in the country. But I suppose it's been giving, it's a false economy for businesses and play, people have been kind of on life support and they just, and these these have been a help, but people have been rolling up, like the, 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 there is a shortfall with the crisp payments, like 
basically it's 50% of what businesses need every week and yes. month to pay their their stand, their overheads. And what businesses have been doing, every month they're rolling up debt. They're just storing it away. And a lot of, a lot of bodies and organizations are happy to say, look, we understand the situation when you're back on your feet. But the problem is that that debt is rolling up month on month. And the, the, the life support uh, money that you're getting, that's fine and perfect and, and, you know, very grateful for. But that doesn't cover all the costs. Okay. Okay. So that's 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 where the issue is, and it's it's good to have, but what it's happening, you have a mount. We'll have a mountain of debt to face yeah. at the other end of it, and yeah. so the longer it goes on, that bigger that mountain gets. Okay, okay, Mike, leave it there. Thanks very much. Let me go to um, that's Mike Ryan from the Restaurants Association of Ireland, and of course, owner of Corn Store and Cockbull, Michael O'Donovan from the Castle is uh, the Cork rep of the VFI. Michael, any. Satisfaction or any change in the mood after the fact that you know we now know it'll be around the fifth of July. Yeah, look, I suppose this morning is a is a good morning, a welcome morning, PJ. If the state comes to fruition later on this afternoon, um, look, we've been campaigning for as early in July as possible. Um, we were looking for the first of July. Um, I suppose we got a little bit worried yesterday evening when we heard the details of the vaccine delay. But um, luckily, uh, I suppose talking to TDs and ministers last night, they were uh, assuring us that, look, uh, we'll be somewhere over 70% still vaccinated first dose by the end of June. So that's the position that the North were in um, when they opened up indoors. So, look, uh, thankfully, we're going for the 5th of July, it looks mm. like. So it's very welcome. Your colleague, uh, Padraig Cribben, um, was saying this morning that the problem with July 5th is you miss the first weekend. good July weekend. Yeah. Now, for the sake of the few days, is that worth fighting over? Look, I, I suppose for for some of our members, it, the first weekend is a crucial weekend. Look, the schools, the second, the primary schools break uh, the 30th of um, of June. So the first weekend is a big weekend for people going away. And look for tourist hotspots areas, guys that are there. Um, they look. We know the schools are going back around the week of the 22nd of August. Uh, the secondary schools will be opening up that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So people will be returning home probably the 19th to 20th of August. So it, look, it's cutting their season to make a bit of money to get through the next winter a bit short. So mm-hmm. every day counts for them. So the only thing about that is, and the first week in July, we would hope against hope that it would be possible to enjoy a pint outside. So for the sake of the couple of days, where's the problem? Yeah, it's just the the viability of it, uh, PJ. Look, when you're outdoors, your capacity is greatly, greatly reduced. I know we're going to be operating with the with the, the guidelines that are there, but like the difference between outdoor and indoor is chalk and cheese for most people. Yeah. So like uh, just to make it viable, yes, people will be able to get a drink, they'll be able to get a bite to eat outdoors, but people probably, you know, some people it just won't be viable, the outdoor uh, uh, areas. So getting indoors is where you, you're, you're viable. Yeah. And look, what some members have said to us is uh, like a day in July is the equivalent to a month in November. So like you can work it out that if every day they lose is, is a major yeah. Uh, yeah. cost for them. A couple of questions on the guidelines under which you will be opening. Um, is there going to be a time limit after the 5th of July indoors? 
Look, uh, as it stands now, the answer is yes. But when we get to, um, uh, as we go through the month of June, and I think towards the third or fourth week of June, the guidelines will be revisited. And one of the things that we would be very hopeful is that the time limit will be looked at at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm t- And the other thing too, and I'm again speaking to Mr. Cribben earlier in the week, I made the point, I, I have a, and I'm not going to name the premises, I, I have a booking made for a Saturday in June for an outdoor gathering of three or four of friends of mine. And the booking, we, we, we've had, we want a few pints, that's all we want. But the booking says we have to eat. So, so what's the story there? Is it just that the guidelines weren't published when the bookings were being made or what? Yeah, look, I suppose somewhere. And then I suppose the other side of it is, PJ, some premises will have, um, will have tables that are food, for food and drink and some will be just probably drink-only tables, but that will be up to the individual establishment. I look, see. I suppose some of them, as it goes back to my point about the outdoors, PJ, it'll be very limited in what people can do outdoors just purely because of space. Yes. So people, look, if you're paying a kitchen brigade in the kitchen, um, you have to be providing food for those tables or else yes. you won't survive too long. So I, look, I hope people will understand that, that for the few weeks that we're outdoors, people will have to try and, uh, I suppose, make ends meet. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're helping. You're helping the pub, I suppose, to survive if you if you're buying a bit of grub. Which I, I suppose that that that's fair. Just lastly and briefly, Michael, I know you've other other stuff to do. The music ban. Like I cannot, and I'm wondering, can you understand? I cannot understand the science behind not allowing a fellow with a guitar into the corner of a beer garden. I, I can't yeah, get look, that. It, it is, uh, PJ, look, I'm talking to colleagues, it's been one of the contentious issues uh, since um, since they were published Wednesday afternoon. I know, especially outdoors, and I've, I've, I've said it to TDs, uh, ministers in the last 48 hours, you know, a lot of our people had put in I suppose, what what we call little stages, little areas for outdoor so that people could create an atmosphere having a one-man band playing a bit of music and like tables would have been social distanced, they would have been back from the stage and it would have given, look, I suppose a bit of hope to our colleagues in the music industry that they'd get back on their feet as well. So outdoors we thought it would... um, it, it would be permitted. We we had guessed that indoors it would be um, like what it was the the last time. It might have been. Uh, um, it might not have been allowed. But um, but yeah, we are disappointed that that has been put into the outdoor, especially. Okay. All right, Michael. Thanks very much for that, Michael O'Donovan, from the Castle Tavern, Castle Inn, and of course the uh, Cork VFI rep. So fifth of July indoors. Presently, time limits. The document is what they call a moving one so that could change and they're hoping that it will. The music ban indoors and outdoors will remain but 5th of July is when they will open 185715996 now why are you pushing the ISAG message again on the 9am news this is the public health message. I'm presuming you're referring to the interview in the news, Michael, with Ivan Perry, Professor Perry, who's been a regular guest on this show and is one of the most respected voices in public health in the country. It appears that even your presenters have the zero COVID agenda on social media accounts. I I think you're probably referring to my tweet, my Twitter, which has had Cork for Zero on it for several months, and it will remain there because that's where I want to go. I want to live in a world where there's zero COVID might be achieved through viruses, might be achieved through measures, or viruses, vaccines, but it might be achieved through measures, but that's where I want to live. You need to stop this ISAG misery narrative that you push at every opportunity. See, Michael, if science 
and good scientific practice and public health and good scientific public health practice is misery, then that's where we're going. Because it's been the editorial policy on the opinion line since day one here on 96FM that we will listen at all times to the science and to the public health and to directions. Because you know what, guess? You know, they know we don't. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. How come PJ has his second jab while many of us in our 70s have not and some haven't even had a first one? Is this the well-run HSE system that he keeps praising? Well, if that is the situation, caller, and there were people still in their 70s who haven't had a first jab, then that's just disgraceful disgraceful and I would be following that up with your GP or anybody else you can make noise with Uh, what happened to me was that my GP called me for a jab look I don't mention my age much on the show I'm 56 and my GP called me I was literally sitting down to register when I was entitled to and my GP called me the very same day and said look I have a clinic on Thursday and I have some spare vaccines um, and you're in the cohort, do you want to come in? And that's how I got my first one and I got my second one yesterday. Um, so there you go. But if you haven't, if you're not, if you're a 70 something and you haven't got a, a first, let alone a second jab at this stage, then there's a serious problem. And I'd be on my GP's house and I'd be on the HSE's house until you get called, because that's just not good enough at all. 1850 Now on weddings... The arrangements, as we have before us this morning, are that from the 7th of June, there can be 25 at a wedding. In July, from the 5th of July, it can be 50. And into August, we're looking at 100 all going well. Now, I don't think we have music yet. We certainly, yesterday, were in two minds about it. And when we got the hotel guidelines, Terry got them yesterday, uh, the hotel guidelines, there's another 30-odd page document. And to say that that is confusing is just to say the least. Sandra Looney was on with me this morning, or yesterday morning rather, from To Have and To Hold. Sandra, good morning. Good morning again. First of all, on the numbers, uh, 25 from the 7th of June, 50 from the 5th of July, 100 in August. Good news? Very good news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, better than we were anticipating. We imagined that maybe the 50 might last until September. So we're very happy to see that there's a potential there'll be 100 guests from from August in particular. So yeah, we're far more positive this morning than we were yesterday morning. Good. As regards suppliers, and that's everything literally from photographers to sweetie carts to musicians to makeup artists, reading the the guidelines yesterday um, from the hotel, from from the the hotels, it wasn't easy to ascertain whether music would be allowed. And that's been the challenge all along. As I mentioned yesterday, there it, it's really difficult to understand exactly what is allowed and what isn't from a music perspective. We're, we're really clear now on, on photographers, videographers and the makeup artists, etc. And obviously everybody works within guidelines. And uh, where there's a big question mark now is still the music. Um, because on one hand, we're being told no live music indoors or outdoors. And then... Um, as you say, the guidelines from um, the hotels um, 
are allowing all suppliers. So what does that mean? So there is a little bit of um, clarification still needed, um, particularly around music. Yeah. And they've said it's a moving document. So I think from your sector, I know this, and I know that the entertainment sector, because I was talking to some of the lads yesterday, they're just open arms about this because they've not worked now since since March of, of 2020. They need clarification. Everyone needs clarification. Everybody does. You know, um, we're kind of that little uh, sector, as I mentioned to you before, that falls between two stools. You know, we're not um, the big events and we're not uh, hospitality. Um, and yet, you know, the number of people that are employed by the wedding industry is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think we're really anxious to get back to work and we want everybody back to work. You know, I want to have all my colleagues back to work with me. Um, There's a great sense of camaraderie and support. So I think, though, to be fair, you know, this is a moving document. I know everybody is working very hard to get everybody back to work. Um, So I would hope that as the weeks evolve, then there'll be more clarity around allowing music back into the um, Mm. the venues. We have a lot more hope than we had this time last year, certainly with vaccines now. In, in the strong position that they're in. So, oh, 100%, yeah. returning to normality, it's going to be slow, but isn't slow and successful better than overdoing it? Well, at least now we have something to work to, PJ, which is what we were, we're really um, excited about. Um, we even have uh, some messages overnight from couples confirming their, their weddings now for August, September, October and December. Um, and we even have now a few couples that are moving from uh, July out to later in the year because now they can have, you know, a larger weather, uh, wedding at the back end of the year. So it's very positive. We just need to get through June. June is still 25 people yeah. with quite a few restrictions. But at least if we know there's light at the end of the tunnel, we can work towards yeah. that. We can start planning with couples. We can start putting plans in place. Yeah. Um, and so it's a it's a far more optimistic outlook this morning, um, albeit that we still need to get... Um, uh, some clarity in key areas like yeah. the um, the music. I was at a wedding myself with the 50 back in October, early October, and it was an enjoyable uh, event, even with the restrictions in place, and they were, they were carefully observed, you know? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we've learned, uh, is that uh, I really believe that the smaller wedding is here to stay. Um, lots of people have loved them. Um, they're far more intimate, a lot less stress. Uh, you get to enjoy the day as a couple uh, far more, uh, maybe then if you, you get to talk to all your guests. A lot of people, yeah, exactly. You get to relax, you get to enjoy your food. Um, so I do think the smaller wedding is here to stay. So um, I think people will be very um, much more in tune with what they want rather than going down the traditional path of having to have 150 to 200 guests yeah. um, when that may not necessarily be what they wanted in yeah. the first place. So, yeah, I, I, I think that we will have a broader range of, of type of wedding. Um, um, and that's not, that's not such a bad thing either. No, it's not. Change change can sometimes be a good thing, Sandra. Just before I let you go, and I'm sure you've told me this before, you mentioned it again a minute ago, the number of people working in Ireland in the, in the wedding industry. In or around, top of your head, how many? Oh, I would be shot if I made a, an attempt at it. Thousands and thousands. Um, really? If you consider everybody working in in bands, photographers, videographers, cake makers, right. bridal shops, bridal dresses, accessories, um, that's just, you know, jewellery right through to the bands, right? Cars. Yeah. Um, everybody that we deal with, all of the people in our in our. Uh, sector who do venue styling, who do things like entertainment, the 
the magicians, the caricatures. Um, it, it's hundreds of thousands. thousands. Um, wow. And um, we're a sector that has been decimated. And a lot of, of these businesses are small businesses. So there's one or two people. So, um, you know, they, they work for themselves and they work very hard. As you know, you've been around this industry a lot yeah. as well. They're out Fridays, we're out Friday, Saturday, Sundays. We work all the weekends. I'm not complaining. We love it. That's what we choose yeah. to do. But it's hard work um, and we earn our crust um, like everybody else. So mm. we've been without any kind of work if, you know, we've had minimal work. And in some cases with some of the weddings, we weren't allowed in. We weren't part of the uh, the, the guidelines. So mm. we've been on the sidelines since uh, March mm. of 20, um, whatever it is, 2020. And, so. you know, when the wedding is winding up or whatever time it does, you know, your, your people, your industry are yeah. the people driving across across the country in the small hours of the morning. Correct, yeah. We're home. picking up props, we're, you know, take dismantling stuff after a wedding, getting so that the hotel can get ready for the next day. You know, we that's what we do, that's what we love doing, but the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes sometimes isn't seen, and um, these people work very, very hard, and for a lot of them, you know, they're not getting... Um, that they haven't been getting um, the clarity that they need. Now we have it, so I think people can start planning. Great. And hopefully it'll be a great back end of the year for all of us. Good, good. Great to hear that. Great to hear positivity and uh, excitement, I suppose. A little bit of excitement. Tushmal and Hibra is a good start for this morning. 1857 Here's something, and we're going to break away from the COVID plan for, for a little bit now, but I'll come back to it if you wish. They've said international travel after July the 19th. Now, and I mentioned on this programme during the week that uh, even with that, and, and that's the week of my holidays, uh, the Coogan clan shall be staying on the island of Ireland this year. It's just a decision that we made. We figured we wouldn't be able to get off at any stage. So we just decided to make a plan to stay in Ireland and we'll be doing that. But I just want um, are we disappointed? Yes. <laughs> yes. I looked at the date last night and I said, God, would we will we take a chance? No, we won't take a chance, Miss. We won't. But will you? So you might have planned an old staycation in Kerry or Clare or Galway or Sligo or Mayo or Waterford or Wexford or anywhere. You might have decided you're going to head up up the north, up towards the, the, the Causeway Coast or up to Derry or up to Donegal or wherever. You might have decided to do that. Will this change your plans? Have you started this morning furiously scrabbling around websites looking for flights and accommodation? Have you for July the 19th, the start of international travel? Of course, you'll have to be vaccinated and you'll have to fulfill certain requirements for the travel. But are you going to do it? Have you had a fantastic moment? That's like, yes! And are you furiously tapping on a, t- a keyboard as we speak? 1850 Peter from Cork, I'll throw this one out there. On the vaccines, what if someone doesn't want to get the vaccine? I don't even take paracetamol for a headache. I'm frightened about taking this. Where do I stand? With all the talk about needing a vaccine to do lots of basic things like travel or going to a venue... Where do people like me stand if I don't take it? I don't know, Peter. I don't think you'll have to prove you're vaccinated to go to a match or anything like or go to a gig. 
But certainly for the foreseeable, you may have to prove you're vaccinated if you want to go on holidays in Spain. But that's a matter for yourself. And if you choose not to be vaccinated, that's a matter for yourself. Anyone feel the way Peter feels? I don't understand that feeling. As I said, and I still say, when I heard of the vaccines coming, I said, which arm, doctor? And both of you want them? But that's just me. There are people who are not like me. Do you feel like Peter? Have you any suggestions for Peter? Yesterday, towards the end of the show, we got word of a breaking story from Crosshaven, where a car had been found submerged in the water near the Hugh Coveney Pier. Now, that car has been removed and is being examined. And there are strong links at this stage, at least there are strong suspected links, to a long-standing missing persons case from 2004. And that is the case of a young man called Barry Collin. Our senior news correspondent, Fiona Corcoran, can bring us up to speed. Fiona, good morning. Good morning, PJ. So what have we got here? Uh, well, Gardaí have issued a statement this morning, PJ, just as an update on to what we had yesterday, and they've confirmed that the vehicle, which was discovered um, in under the water near Hugh Coveney Pier in Crosshaven, that that vehicle has now been recovered from the water and has been removed from the scene and Gardaí will conduct a technical examination of that vehicle and the scene in Crosshaven remains preserved and further searches are being conducted by the Garda Water Unit today and investigations are ongoing and um, as you said, this um, came about first of all on Wednesday evening, the um, or Wednesday afternoon. There was a, 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 tr- a test operation being carried out by the um, so the underwater the Cork City Missing Persons Search and Recovery Unit, and they were using this. Um, it's a new side scan sonar unit and it picked up something under the water and they did a further search and they discovered um, this car that was under the water and they contacted Gardaí. Gardaí arrived at the scene along with the Garda Subacqua team and they began a detailed search of the area. Now the car, uh, PJ, it matched a rust-coloured Toyota Corolla hatchback and um, that car um, matches the description of a car that was owned by a young fisherman by the name of Barry Cullen. He was a 23-year-old man from Crosshaven who went missing in 2004. Now, his family have made many appeals over the last 17 years, um, you know, looking for him, any information on his whereabouts, and they have been spoken to, I believe, by Gardaí, but as yet, um, the, that car has not been officially confirmed as the one that was belonging to him, and um, I understand at this stage that there were no remains found in that car, and I'm assuming that that's why the searches um, of that area are going to be continuing in the hope that maybe it will shed some more light on this yeah. situation that unfolded First job you'd imagine would be to link the car to him in some way through ownership or registration or whatever. That's probably the first job, I guess. That's it, yeah. Um, now, the car, um, obviously, because it's been underwater for so long, um, is in a bit of a, a state. But, you know, there is a technical examination being carried out. And as you said, you know, number plates, um, if they are intact, will be looked at and, and see if there's a match to that or if there's anything inside of that vehicle that may 
match anything that he had owned and um, I suppose it's an investigation that will go on for, for some time and we'll hopefully have more updates as the days progress but okay. um, you know it's um, if it is the card that was belonging to him, I suppose it's, it's it's it would be some sort of closure for the family that, you know, I think for these missing person cases, it must be so horrific to yeah, yeah. to not know where your loved one went to or what happened. But yeah, um, yeah. so Gardy are they're continuing their investigation and um, they're that the scene in Crosshaven is sealed off currently today as well. All right, okay. If you want to leave it there for now, thank you very much. That's the latest from that story in Crosshaven from our senior news correspondent Fiona Corcoran. For those of you who who may not remember, Barry Collin was a fisherman and he'd just gotten a job in Castletown Bear uh, fishing with a trawler. He was due to start work there on the 2nd of May, or due to be back at work on the 2nd of May. He was last seen uh, outside the Moonduster pub in Crosshaven, half one in the morning of May the 1st, and he hasn't been seen since his family just thought, look, he'll go straight to Castledown Bear for work. He didn't turn up there. His car nor him haven't been seen since. And he was 23 at the time that he disappeared. And you just hope against hope that there is going to be some kind of closure for his family coming out of this. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Paddy contacted us before 10 with a question, and I suppose in the context of all of what's happening and all of what's being announced this evening by the Taoiseach, it's a valid one. Um, very valid one for dozens of families I suspect. Any news says Paddy about Holy Communions going ahead? Well, happy to report from Thursday's Echo. Uh, we have a statement or a letter that was written by Bishop Finton Gavin. Has written to the families of children preparing for First Holy Communion. You may not have received this letter yet Paddy, but the school may have And Bishop Gavin says, Recently we have been advised by the government that celebrations of First Holy Communion and Confirmation should not take place in May and June due to health guidelines. We await further guidance. And the bishop has said he will be in touch once again when it's possible to fix some dates. But dates should not be fixed, even provisionally, at this point in time. So that may change, Paddy, when you consider that they're going to be allowing some gatherings. Let me have a look at the dates here. Yeah, gatherings of 50 at weddings and in June and July indoor events. I don't think it's going to happen for you in June, certainly. And August, almost certainly, I could see. But no, nothing at the moment, the bishop says, according to Thursday's Echo. Nothing at the moment with regard to Holy Communions and I assume that uh, confirmation season is gone by the board completely and they'll probably do them in, in the autumn like they did them last year. On uh, travelling and where we might travel to having a staycation in July and then celebrating a big birthday in September can't wait to board a flight to anywhere anywhere at all 
I'm just wondering how quickly after the 19th of July, because at the moment, the 19th of July is the date after which international travel will be allowed. There will be terms and conditions. There will be a need for vaccine, for PCR tests, and all of that. So T's and C's, quite a number of T's and C's, will apply to international travel. But the ban at the moment on non-essential international travel looks like being lifted from... July the 19th. So a lot of people who had booked a staycation or were looking around to book a staycation or a holiday at home in the island of Ireland in August will probably or possibly at least change their minds now and be madly scrabbling on websites for hotels and houses and flights and whatever overseas. Um, Then again, someone got in touch to say that they had planned to go to Lanzarote in September and that that's been cancelled now. So there's going to be all sorts of confusion, typical of that. Kian in Blackpool, Peter, Peter's message, and I'd just like you to think a bit about Peter's message. Um, because I suspect that Peter's not on his own. And I'm going to read it again. As I said, I am fully vaccinated now, and Fergal's had his vaccine. Um, and a number of other people in this building have had their vaccines. A lot of my friends are either close to being vaccinated or have had a call or had one jab, and we're all quite happy about it. But some people are uneasy with this, and it is not right to disrespect them. They're not anti-vaxxers just because they're a little uneasy. Anti-vaxxers are a whole different ball game. They're a whole different species, and I have no time for them. But Peter says, what if someone doesn't want to get the vaccine? I don't even take paracetamol for a headache and I'm frightened about taking this. Where do I stand? With all the talk around needing a vaccine to do lots of basic things like travel or go to a venue, where do people like me stand if I don't take it? Someone I know said to me recently, they work in a... In a sector, shall we say, that's connected to health. They're not healthcare workers, but they come in contact with the health sector a lot. And they're coming under some pressure to get a vaccination. They'd be a bit hesitant. They'd be a bit concerned. They'd be one of these people who say, I'd rather wait and see. And they feel like they're coming under a little pressure. And I'm trying to reassure them, look, the research is there. It's safe. It works you know, the benefits far outweigh any worries that you might have and I'm directing them to wonderful people like John Campbell and all those. But some people are just nervous and nervous, well, it's allowed. It's got to be allowed. Nervous is allowed. So what do you think? Kean came back to say, as regarding Peter, you don't need a vaccine to fly to Spain, PJ. A negative PCR test will suffice, or if you can prove you had COVID, or obviously if you have the vaccine. That was covered in primetime last night. Yeah, those are the T's and C's that will apply. If you can prove you had COVID, you have acquired immunity. They don't know how long that lasts. That's the problem. The research says anything from three months to six months. They don't, they don't actually know, or maybe even a year. They don't know. But if you can prove that you had it, then that will admit you to some places. Uh, if you have a negative PCR, obviously. Um, but the vaccine situation, we are going to need vaccines to go to a lot of holiday spots. Like, I would suspect strongly that the Canary Islands, you won't get in without a vaccine. And I would strongly suspect that the holiday hotspots that have to keep their industry open, you will need vaccines for a lot of those places.
whether the local government, whether the government of the country says or not, for example, Spain may not say, the Spanish government may not say you'd need a vaccine to get in here, but the Canary Islands being sort of separate, they can easily say, well, you do need a vaccine to get in here. So we'll see. All of that will pan out in the fullness of time. But anyone thinking about or feel like Peter feels, I'd be very interested to hear where you're coming from. And look, I am not entertaining anti-vaxxers here. This is not about anti-vaxxers. Most of those are just crackpots. They're either crackpots or they're poor, deluded fools who've been led down a bad rabbit hole. We're talking about people who are genuinely just that little bit nervous. That little bit nervous. And they're out there, a lot of them. Now, the book is called Murder at Roaring Water. And I've been reading it. It's a fine book. It's the inside story of the last days of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. It goes into incredible detail about her violent and still unresolved murder. Um, And the journalist Nick Foster, who writes for the Financial Times and has written a number of crime books before, he spent six whole years piecing together Sophie's life and her death. And he has developed a relationship such as it was with Ian Bailey uh, of course uh, the, the the man who has been long suspected of her murder but never uh, charged in this country he was convicted in his absence in France but never charged in this country and to this day of course he denies any involvement in that murder but the book is six years in the making as I said, and uh, took the opportunity in the last few days to speak with its author, Nick Foster. Nick Foster, thanks for being with us today. You were living in Belgium at the time. You're still living in Belgium. How did you first get interested in this case of Sophie Toscan Duplantier? Well, hi, PJ. Good to be on the show, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I first heard about the case in early 1997 when Ian Bailey was arrested, and I was following the case on on French TV news. And I was just immediately intrigued. I mean, it was such an unusual murder. Apparently, it hadn't been one in that area for 100 years or something. The scene of the crime was so remote and peaceful, but then the violence of the assault was so, so brutal and so appalling. And then the other thing that was really interesting was that Sophie mocked a poem in her anthology of Irish poetry. That poem was A Dream of Death by Yeats. Now, it's not a poem about a murder, but it is a piece of verse about a young woman dying alone in a foreign land. And the environment is clearly rural. And it just seems so prescient of what, you know, what happened to her. Your interest became so strong, of course, that you came to Ireland eventually. You got a chance to to know Ian Bailey and his partner, Jules. How did all that come about? Yeah, yeah, it it was the first time I'd been to the south, actually. I'd been to the north uh, a little bit before, but the the first time I went to the south was... In November uh, 2014, I've got plenty of Irish friends in here in Belgium where I live, and they'd always updated me on the case, you know, over the years. And um, but that was the first time that I'd been to the south, and I, you know, I got on a plane when I found out that Ian Bailey was about to take the stand at the four courts in Dublin in a civil action against the guards and the state. You know, I realised that this was a great opportunity. I mean, to uh, both to find out more about the case but also to get to know uh, Mr. Bailey personally. Yeah, for listeners, I suppose we should explain that was an action for wrongful arrest, false imprisonment, and a series of other wrongdoings 
including that Mr. Bailey was the victim of a Garda conspiracy to frame him for the killing. Now, there was a lengthy hearing. Those claims were ruled by the judge to be statute barred, save for the alleged conspiracy. The jury ultimately rejected that. It's also important to point out that Ian Bailey has always denied any involvement in the murder. I've got to tell you, uh, PJ, at the beginning, I was planning a, you know, a magazine article pretty much on, on, on the story because uh, if you think back, you know, that civil case in Dublin was announced with a whole lot of fanfare. You know, it was you know, you know, set up to be a long case, set up to be you know, a really detailed hearing. In any case, I got to know Mr. Bailey at the uh, civil action. I think on the second or third day I was there. Uh, I introduced myself to him and he was tremendously friendly and keen to talk. And so I went on a couple of nights out in Temple Bar with him and his uh, partner, Jules Thomas, who was equally friendly. And Mr. Bailey invited me to, to, to come to West Cork to, you know, to see how he lived and to talk some more about the case. In, in the end, we talked an awful lot about the case. So, so you ended up, you, you went out with him to Temple Bar and with Jules, even though he knew you were a journalist writing a story about the case? Absolutely, absolutely. He knew, he knew very well indeed. I mean, it was the first thing that I, you know, I said to him. At the beginning, I said, well, you know, I, I was going to write for, um, you know, possibly pitch a story to the uh, Financial Times, which was what I was writing at the time, for the most part. Um, so right from the first, I imagine, first sentence, you know, that, that, I, that I said to him, you know, he knew for well I was a journalist. Afterwards, so it would have been, I suppose, well, I don't know, perhaps about a year later, a bit less, I told him, you know what, this is a really fascinating story, and I don't think it's a magazine article, I don't think it's a newspaper article, I think it's a book. Um, should say as well that, you know, one really odd thing about that um, civil case in 2014-2015, which Mr. Bailey ultimately lost, was that, if you think about it, right, uh, courts are places where there's conclusion, right, and, and closure, so there's a verdict and things are settled. But what was odd here was that the case left me with, with you know, that uh, experience of sitting in the, on the press bench in the, in the courtroom. It left me with far more questions than answers. And that, that itself really drew me in. Yeah. I think there's a, a tradition in journalism of, of, of trying to find out more, but also, you know, trying to investigate properly. And I wanted to dig deeper. I just wanted to shed light on the story. I really, really, really wanted to discover something. As you left the courtroom at the end of that case... What were the key questions in your mind, Nick, that you wanted to answer? Well, there were a few things that came up. I mean, the, the, uh, in no particular order, let's say. Uh, the, the, the first thing was that Mr. Betty had made a, a, a series of confessions. Now, uh, he describes these to me as his so-called confessions. And this was uh, later on, although we're jumping ahead a bit, this was a main area of difference between the French prosecutor on the one hand and the Irish DPP on the other. But it struck me as being very uh, strange, you know, back in the day in 2014, that somebody who was the, you know, the only suspect in the murder should be making confessions and that some of them should be so detailed, you know, so graphic. In the end, the DPP said, oh, you know, these are examples of Mr. Bailey's frustration or his sarcasm. Yeah, the confessions were described by Ian Bailey's side in the court case against the state. They were described as black humour. One of them was the conversation with a boy. Well, with a boy, exactly right. That, that was a teenage boy. Uh, now, he was 14 at the time, and he gave, uh, uh, Mr. Bailey gave him a lift home. And it was with that boy that, that Mr. Bailey 
said, I'm going to give you the sanitized version, you know, but said something like, you know, I went up there in the middle of the night and I bashed her head in with a rock. Now, the, the thing is that, you know, you can say, what's confession? You can say a confession is essentially somebody, somebody saying that they did something, right? But this seems to me to go way beyond that. And Mr. Belly doesn't deny that he, that he used graphic language in describing how the murder was carried out. He just says that it was frustration. He was saying what people said about him. But I'll tell you something else, both, in the t in both when it comes to this uh, then-teenage boy in February 1997 and, as far as I can tell, with the other people to whom Mr. Bailey made confessions, they were left with no um, doubt at all that these were confessions that wasn't about sarcasm or frustration. And they went to the guards with that in mind because they believed that, these were, that, that they were confessions. Paint me a picture in words, Nick, if you could, of the Ian Bailey that you got to know, and you got to know him well, and you got to spend time with him, and a lot of time with him, and a lot of time with Jules. Like, paint us a picture in words of that person that you knew, and did you ever see it as a friendship? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, first of all, you know, to paint a picture of him, I mean, he's very amusing. He can be amusing, and I think that people are surprised. I mean, the book that I wrote about the case has you know, flashes of humor in it because, you know, hanging out with him was, was funny sometimes. I mean, he is amusing. Mm. He can also be quite warm. What I would say is that, you know, uh, you know, he also talks at length about the murder and its aftermath. I mean, that's a gift if you're writing a book because, you know, just sit down at his table and he starts talking and, and you know, he doesn't stop. So, I mean, that's, that's an absolute gift. You don't have to prize information out, out of him. Got the impression that, um, you see, I met him in um, 2014, and the conversation that, that, that I had with him over in West Cork were in, you know, 2015 onwards. Yeah. And by then, I got the impression he was quite, I mean, he was obviously quite good at explaining his defense. You know, he'd been in court, you know, several times. He spent quite a long time, uh, you know, under cross-examination, for instance, and he really knew, you know, he knew his defense. Plus, he's now a lawyer. Yeah, it was exactly, he's also got a law degree as well. As, as, as you know, um, obviously it was for me to find out the case against him, which I was determined to do. But I have to say that he was, you know, very warm and welcoming. He's a great cook, by the way. Uh, and, you know, the, you know it, was, it, was, it was always very interesting to go there. And, I, and there was always a lot of material that I, that I was able to, you know, either record or note down. What I, what I thought was kind of odd, though... And it happened within 15 minutes of going to his cottage at the prairie for the, you know, for the first time, was that, you know, I, I sat down with a cup of coffee and, and, and I just said to him, well, you know, do you miss writing? Now, I meant that in a general sense because, as you know, he, he you know, applied his trade as a journalist, mm. uh, you know, and he'd earned he'd money that way, and it was important to him. Now, I, I, I didn't mean if you miss writing about the case, but he took the question to mean about the case and he said, no. Uh, I don't miss my uh, writing about the, the affair, as he called it, because now I can play the journalist like puppets on strings. And I thought, you know, wow, what a thing to say, but it's also a warning, isn't it? I mean, that's, you know, uh, Mr. Bailey admitting to a certain level of manipulation, you know. How did you interpret that reply? I mean, it's, it's, it's I think you can interpret it on, on two levels. The first of all is that, you know, he was quite comfortable sitting down at his, you know, pine, pine table, is uh, in his kitchen talking about the case and he felt at ease uh, perhaps because we're from the same part of England I'm not sure or we've done the same things I mean you know, I'm a freelance journalist as well but you know I think that's the 
that that's the that's the first thing. The other thing is that you know if you think about it, it's you know it's a clear admission of manipulation, and I think that that's a warning as well. It was a warning to me. You know, that's how I took it, PJ. At the time, it was a warning. I thought, okay, wow, you know, I've got to I've got to be careful here. But I think it's a warning as well to all journalists. You know, uh, reporting on the story that Mr. Bailey. You know, it admits to manipulation and it's something that you've just got to bear in mind. Now, in the course of writing the book, you've had the chance to study, gather the files on the case, Nick, and those files are not in the public domain. But having looked at that and taken your own work into account over the last number of years, what's your assessment, as it were, of the investigation as we understand it? So, first of all, you know, what is the Garda file? PJ, it's 670 pieces of evidence, which were largely supplied by local people in Skull, Goline and, and Tormor, and more broadly in West Cork. And the sense I have, which is an absolutely clear sense, is that those local people wanted to do everything that they could to help the guards, and those people were doing their civic duty. It's also true to say that um, the guards, I think, did a really good job with door-to-door inquiries, because they put a lot of uh, women and men on the ground to do that. The, the, the relationships that, that existed within that community were really strong, so the, the gods didn't have a problem you know, approaching local people and, and really got the sense that, that local people in West Cork wanted to do what they could to help. Now, you're right, the God file is not public and hardly anybody in County Cork has seen it, apart from Mr Bailey and his legal team. And that means that it's difficult to contest the claim that they make that it's corrupt in some way. Uh, you know, I'm really not seeing, I'm really not seeing the corruption in this file. Of course, it's difficult for anyone to say, you know what, it isn't corrupt because you know you don't have access to it. Um, but it's it's essentially that it's it's a long, long, long list of statements and testimony by people trying to help. Uh, and give an example of how people. Uh, try to help. Um, for instance, there were the phone calls that Mr. Bailey made uh, on the morning after the crime, and people were saying, well, well he said this to me, you know, he said that, uh, which were in the, in the Garda file. And equally, there's testimony from um, about half a dozen witnesses at the Galley Bar and Skull the night before the crime, where those people were saying that Mr. Bailey didn't have any scratches on his hands and his forearms and yet after the murder he did have. So it's, it's people coming forward, they're doing their duty, PJ, they're doing their duty. And that's, that's the impression that I get. Yeah, just on those scratches, Nick, again important to point out, Mr Bailey has said he got them from cutting down a Christmas tree and from killing turkeys. There's a very distinct sense coming through your writing that these people really, really did want to know what happened to this lovely woman who used to visit quite frequently. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And I mean, I've spoken with people in, in, in West Cork and they're so upset, you know, that there's this stain on the countryside, if you like, around there and in the community that um, Sophie's killer hasn't spent even five minutes in jail for this appalling crime. And, um, and I saw the, I mean, I saw the, just the, it, it upsets them. It upsets them. I, I spoke to so many people who were so upset by that. And then I think as well of, of Sophie's poor parents. Now, I saw them at the, for the first time at the, uh, at the trial in Paris two years ago. And I saw the pain and the anguish etched into their faces. They're in their 90s. They're very elderly. And, you know, they have been, 
they've been burdened by this for every day since. Can you imagine? 24 and a half years. That's just unthinkable. I've met her mum. Have you? I have, I have. And it's, it's, it's pathetic, really, is the word to see that they've never had, had the answer. I'll come back to them actually, Nick, in a bit. Like, as well as Mr. Bailey, there's another person whose name is writ large in the investigation, and that's, that's Marie Farrell. Though her involvement, complicated, is the simple word for it. Have you been able to tease it out a bit more? Well, you know what? Uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, th- well, the way that I teased it out was to, to look pretty closely at the evidence that exists in the Garda file, but also I was there in 2014 when she took the stand in Dublin. At one point, she kind of ran off, and then, you know, we didn't know where she was, and then she came back. She got a warning from the, from the judge. Um, all of that made the headlines at the time in Ireland. Um, but I can say this. First of all, that that piece of... The, the, the principal piece of evidence that Marie Farrell um, brought to the table, let's say, was the sighting of a man she uh, uh, claimed was Ian Bailey at 3 a.m. On, on the night of the murder at a place called Kilfada Bridge, mm. uh, which is, yeah, just under two miles from, from Sophie's house on the main road between Skull and Galeen. Now, the thing about this is that it's a really tricky piece of visual evidence because the person that Mrs. Farrell said she saw would have been lit up in the headlights of a car for a split second. The other thing was that she's on record as saying that the person had one or both hands held up to his face. Now, that makes identification even more difficult. And on top of that, Mrs. Farrell was in the car with an old flame, apparently, according to her testimony. But we still don't know who this man was. Um, Now, what's interesting is that the DPP, I think, looking at their their, report on the the Godafar, I think they were bang on the money because in 2001, they pointed out to the guards, you know what, um, we don't know who this man saw, right? He mm-hmm. could have seen Ian Bailey at the side of the road, he could have seen nobody, or he could have seen someone else entirely. And you really get the impression that a defense barrister, you know, worth his salt, would have batted this one away really easily in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising that the guards didn't see this. What I think happened was, that there was a certain kind of excitement with the gods. They really thought they had something big. And there was also a, an element of groupthink, you know, and it was difficult for anybody, I suppose, at that point to kind of step out of line and say, well, I'm not quite sure. It's a tricky piece of visual evidence, this one. You know, and I think that they, at the end of the day, I think that they, you know, they put most of their eggs in a basket with Mrs. Farrell's name on it. There have, over the last 20-something years, been other theories, of course, like including that she might have been killed by a hitman. What do you think of those theories? That's absolute nonsense. That's absolute nonsense that there's a French connection. That's absolute nonsense. I can tell your uh, listeners why it's nonsense. Here's the thing. Um, It wasn't well reported in the Irish press or media that Sophie had never previously travelled to West Cork on her own. So she she had the house for, for four years. PJ, you know, almost exactly four years. I calculate that she went to West Cork on something like 16 to 18 occasions. Each time she went with either a family member, often one of her cousins, with her son, or with a friend. Um, how then could somebody who was you know, thinking of organizing a hit have predicted that on that final 
journey in, you know, just before Christmas in 1996, that she'd be travelling on, on her own. She'd never done so before. Now, that information was, um, uh, was confirmed by Sophie's family several months after the murder. But it wasn't, you know, widely reported. I must say you're quite correct, because I took the phone call in the newsroom at 96FM to say there'd been a murder. So from that day to this, I've been fascinated by the story. It was in reading the opening chapters of your book, it dawned on me, that is right. She'd never come on her own before, and we kind of forgot that. Yeah, exactly, and I can understand, you know, why, why that might have happened, because one of the tricky things about this case is that there's a ton of evidence, uh, PJ, over in France, and you kind of need to speak French to 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 really understand it. I mean, I'm lucky enough to to you know to speak French and uh, and I'm you know I'm 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 conversant with the culture as well. So it makes it kind of easier for me. But it's it's a bit tricky to get the information. You know, if it's in the original French, to perhaps understand it all. Um, but just get back to your question about the about the idea of a hitman. Here's the other thing. Yeah, you know, what kind of hitman? What kind of hitman rocks up to the house of the target? And you know what? He just kind of looks on the ground for something to do her in with. You know, a piece of slate here, a block of concrete there. I mean, it's unthinkable. It's absolutely unthinkable. You know, we're not seeing a premeditated hit. What we're seeing is somebody went over there um, and got very, very, very angry. It's a hugely, hugely misogynistic crime. But it's a crime that's born of anger and, I think, hatred towards women. But it was not premeditated. It's the reverse, the absolute reverse of a hit. And, that, and that, that somebody could have come over from France to do it, I can tell your listeners, it's absolutely not the case. There is no French connection whatsoever here. And the frenzied nature of it too just didn't sit with, with, with the hitman theory. Nick, the, the DPP has, of course, never considered that there was a sufficient case to prosecute Mr Bailey. And he strongly maintains his innocence to this day but he's been convicted in his absence in France under their judicial system you mentioned her parents earlier that is the saddest part of this isn't it Sophie's family they've no closure do you think they'll ever get it yeah I, I, I hope so they deserve it don't they PJ and I think that um, my, my feeling now is that there's certainly an, an even or, or maybe slightly better chance that there will be significant progress in the case by the end of the year and that's where we left it with journalist and author Nick Foster. His new book is Murder at Roaring Water, the inside story of the final days of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. I've read it. It's a super read. And the great thing about it is it reads like a novel. So it takes you along like a novel. Uh, and it, it draws you in like a novel. So it's a great read. A lot of detail. A lot of detail, but not heavy detail. In other words, not detail that you'll struggle to take in. Just a lot of it there. It's a fine, fine read. Uh, six years in the making. And 25 years ago this Christmas, when you think about that, 25 years ago this Christmas, since that poor that poor woman was, was killed in, in West Cork. And of course, that book, and there'll be many other books, I suppose, and articles, and discussion, and there's a new episode of the West Cork podcast has dropped recently um, and there'll be I think is it two documentaries coming there's one on Sky and one on Netflix so we're going to be hearing an awful lot more for the rest of 2021 about the case of the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier and 
I expect we may catch up again with Nick Foster if his prediction there should come to pass. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. The award-winning, critically acclaimed show, Mary and Me, returns in a new version reimagined for digital presentation. Mary and Me, The Art of Being Invisible, is written and performed by Irene Kelleher and is a live video stream from the Everyman Theatre taking place this June. Access all areas. Drawing on the award-winning book A Ghost in the Throat, Darren the Griefer presents a live literary event created in collaboration with filmmaker Tygo Sullivan and composer Linda Buckley. A live stream takes place on June 27th with more details at everymancork.com. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled show coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Back to the subject of Peter's very carefully and thoughtfully worded message this morning about how he is just that little bit nervous with regard to the vaccine. Peter is one of these people who he says himself doesn't even take paracetamol for a headache. And there's people like that out there. There's nothing wrong with them. They're not crazy. They just live like that. And he's nervous. Um, some people would be. Um, Eugene, for example, says, if you, what, when you'll be seen in hospital for free if you have a bad reaction? I don't know is the answer, Eugene. But if you don't feel well other than some very ordinary symptoms then you should ring your doctor and get the advice there Maria says PJ I'm 44 I can't wait for the registration to open for my age group everyone I know is already after their first vaccine I feel kind of left out at this stage and then six unvaccinated people this on the phone six unvaccinated people can go into a hotel can eat away uh, but at the same time if you're vaccinated you go to a cafe to get a meal and you have to sit at the side of the street to eat it where is the vaccine dividend? That's interesting point. Thanks, caller. I mentioned my second jab yesterday and that I was feeling a little bit flat this morning. And, and these are things that are perfectly normal. So if anyone's going for their jab and are wondering what to feel after it, so my arm is sore. Um, it feels like, it's, for all the world, like I pulled the muscle. That's the best way to describe it. It's It's sore. Uh, and I've been getting sort of little little temperature variations. I can feel my temperature going up, and two paracetamol will bring it down. So nothing that paracetamol won't won't manage. My sleep was a little bit disturbed. Um, I woke a couple of times, feeling a little bit disorientated. Um, but again, okay. And I did feel sluggish and sort of battered when I woke up this morning but again, nothing that my breakfast and a coffee won't sort and two paracetamol and I expect after the first vaccine I felt very very, very much like this as well I expect it will all subside by this evening but they're perfectly normal effects and as the experts have said to us, more than one expert has said to us now, if your body is responding that way, that means you have a healthy immune system, which is great to know. Now we hear that 
We talked to Ronan and Murphy earlier in the week from Smart Tech 24-7 that look, they're, they're making progress now at last in the HSE. They've got the encryption key. They've cleaned it up and made it usable. It's still slow, but it'll be a lot quicker than it was. But it's still going to take a few weeks before everything is back to anything close to normal. Uh, people got paid Yes, This is another thing. The thousands of employees in the HSE were worried about whether they get paid. They, they got paid yesterday, but things like expenses and travel and subsistence they can't even put those in right now because that computer system is still down. But it's slow and it's difficult, but at least it's moving. And hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll get a lot more movement. Uh, we'll keep in touch with that and we'll possibly talk to Roland again about how it is going. But with regard to your own devices at home, your home computer, your PC or laptop, your tablet your Android television, which, of course, is connected to the Internet, your smart TV, again, that's connected to the Internet, uh, your Netflix, whatever you use to stream that, all these things are connected to the Internet, which means that they can be got at too. Um, and when we had Bruce Schneier on the program a couple of weeks ago, he said with a small little invasion like that, a couple of hundred bucks, and you get your stuff back. But you can... Protect yourself. Aidan Connolly has the IT repair shop on Oliver Plunkett Street. Morning, Aidan. Morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good. There's a few basics we can do just to keep ourselves safe at home. But before I get to that, like, are we genuinely a, ta- a target for the kind of nefarious characters that have plundered the HSE? Yeah, uh, yeah. They'd obviously be on a much smaller scale, but obviously you don't want to... You don't want... You just want to keep yourself safe. So, like, we just recommend... Um, uh, antivirus on your laptop, uh, internet security as opposed to antivirus, it's, it's, it's better protection. And, um, y- you know, we, we put on a Bitdefender, Bitdefender internet security is 35 euro. And when you go into your banking 365 or whatever, 24 uh, banking, uh, your, your AIB or whatever, it, it provides a firewall, um, which is fantastic. But uh, I, I was just thinking about it during the week there. It's there's the new thing that's a two-factor two auto- authentication. Anytime you go to buy or purchase anything, when we purchase anything from suppliers or whatever, we ha- we ha- I have the two-factor authentication yeah. turned on. So you get a text to your mobile phone with a code, and you have to put in the code within five minutes. And yeah. it's, it's, it's very important like for everybody to make sure that on their credit card or whatever, to ring their bank to make sure this two-tone or... Two-factor authentication is enabled, yeah. and it, you know it, it's peace of mind that your card hasn't been used anywhere else, and you know you, that you you only purchase what you're actually purchasing because you 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 put in the code that your text. Yeah, I discovered last week actually quite by accident. I was looking up my own bank account to pay a bill, as you do, and when I went to get in, it said check your phone, and my blasted phone was out in the car. I had to go to get it. And you just tap this thing like that. I, I, I can't. That, okay, it's a bit of a nuisance, but it's it's safe. Oh, it's brilliant! It's brilliant. And also uh, another thing, um, my my uncle in Connemara, my mother back home. I think it's important to ring your bank and uh, um, to ask them to send you out a monthly statement. Like a lot of people uh, would be afraid. Uh, no, fair, fair enough. If you if you if you don't want to do online banking, just ring your bank and tell them you want a statement every month. You would just want a monthly statement like the old days. They come up with this nonsense, in my opinion, where they're cutting down on paper and they're not sending you the monthly bill, the monthly statement anymore. So ring your bank, tell them, listen, you'll pay the two euro a month, you'll pay the 24 euro a year, you want the monthly statement, you have your monthly statement. 
Hence, you're not answering the phone to any any scam artist pretending to be the banks, pretending to be Microsoft, pretending to be whoever, or sending you emails where you're following a link. Never, ever follow a link. The amount of times that we've had people come in here and their machine has been hacked by following a link and, mm. and uh, you know, the mother would say, oh, my son, he knows everything. He's very savvy. And we got an email from Microsoft and we followed the link. And, you know, you never, ever follow any link. And mm. nobody, these people aren't interested in ringing you or me, uh, you know, Microsoft or any of them. They're only interested in selling things. Mm. But they're not, they're not going to ring uh, Joe Blogs, like, you know. Yeah. Can... This kind of stuff get into things like your your Android streaming box or your smart TV or anything like that, or your tablet or anything like that. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, no, but obviously you're being tracked when you have a smart device or any phone, whatever, anything that's smart, Bluetooth enabled. You know, you're 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 being tracked for sales. But it's it's literally just sales. It's they just want to sell things to you. If you, if I was talking here to Derek about with camper vans or whatever, yeah. the next thing you, for the next week we'd be bombarded with Facebook or, uh, on a camper van. They are listening to you, aren't oh. they? You can oh. have a conversation over the dinner table about something, and the next time you go into Facebook, you get an ad. They are listening to you. Oh, they are, they're listening. Like and I used to say to my sister in Ross Cray a couple of years ago, and she said, "Ooh, cuckoo," you know. But they're listening in all the time. Um, it's it, it's all just for sales. Like uh, I was, I was minding a little one. We adopted a little one recently from Thailand, and I was minding in 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 you all there last week. And listen to classic hits. Uh, um, you you were finished, obviously, PJ. But listen to classic hits. The next thing, I hope you're enjoying classic hits in you all. And I was there. Holy God! From the wife's 2013 uh, Nissan Qashqai, like you know. Thank you. But uh, it's it, it's scary. Yeah. Okay. But 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 the only way of getting off the grid is making sure you have no Bluetooth device. But but it's it, it, it's it's just it's just all all sales that they're, they're interested. In. Take care. Get something on your internet. Get a firewall. You recommend a thing called Bitdefender, but I suppose there's many others out there. Aiden, just need to be careful of your devices at home. Make sure you have some kind of protection. Thank you very much. Aiden Connolly from the IT Repair Shop on Oliver Plunkett Street. Biki Kuramuk Sawalya, as they say. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. No sign of the sunshine in the city just yet. Still cloudy, but looks a lot more uh, pleasant than it was this time yesterday. Some lovely pictures coming in on Twitter, though, from Kerry. Looks absolutely glorious down in Kenmare, the Valhalla B&B in Kenmare, which is on Twitter. The beautiful location down there. They have put up a gorgeous picture. Gorgeous picture of what looks like a, a savage day and a savage weekend brewing in Kildare. Here's hoping that all the predictions are right. Here, Cahal Nolan on the news. Cahal is usually spot on. And Alan from Carlo Weather has been giving us good predictions for the weekend. My ever-reliable uh, Dark Sky weather app is uh, very, very promising for the weekend. Tomorrow, just a 3% chance of a shower. Top temperature is 16, but it's sunshine. Sunday, a lot of sunshine. Very little chance of rain, 18. These are shade temperatures. Monday, running into next week. In fact, Dark Sky has the weather very well, very nice, with the exception of next Wednesday, up into the June weekend, Dark Sky is giving us a pretty decent 
spell of weather. So here's hoping that it's May at last. 1857-15996. PJ, Paul says, PJ, I got my second Moderna jab on Monday. I was fine until Tuesday, and then the antennas went up, and I can receive every bleeding signal from the galaxy. It was rattling till 9 o'clock that night. Um, so I just have a few paracetamol ready for round two. Yeah, yeah. No, there's very little that will happen to you after any one of the vaccines that a bit of paracetamol or a couple of salpidine won't deal with. Uh, and if it doesn't deal with it, you can always pick up the phone to your doctor and say you're a little bit worried. But the side effects, as we're told, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Brint told us a few weeks ago, uh, John Campbell has been talking about it, um, Luke O'Neill has been talking about it. If after your first or your second jab, you feel just a little bit off for 24 to 36 hours, then that is perfectly normal. You have a working and functioning immune system, which is a good thing at the best of times. Denise Curtin, digital editor from Stellar Magazine. Denise, did you see it? Good morning. Good morning. I did. I did. And I'm, I, you know what? I loved it. Were you a I, fan I originally? I was a fan. Now, I wasn't a super fan, but I enjoyed the odd episode and I definitely had seen all 10 seasons at some point in my life but yeah. um, I, I wasn't a major fan so coming into the to the reunion I was excited for it but I was a bit sceptical that it was going to be this sit down style interview with James Corden and it wouldn't deliver you know what the fans wanted to see but yeah. thankfully I was proven wrong when, um, when it aired yesterday uh, the reunion was just everything you'd want and more. It was fantastic. Fans were hoping, I think, at some stage for either a movie or another few new episodes. Could it be coming following this? See, I think the problem with having a movie or a few episodes is just the comparison to the original series. You're never going to get it the exact same. And I think it could lead to a bit of letdown because of the fact that the cast have all moved on, both in, you know, their real life and in the life of friends. You know, they're so much older now that I think the gap might just be too large. But revisiting and looking back on the show from 1994 to 2004 that everyone really did love and how precious that was of a show, I think... It's it, the way that they did it was seamless. It, it's I think it's the way to look back on a show. I think sometimes if you do, you know, a reboot, it, it just it can be a bit difficult to yeah. land well. So I yeah. think the way they did it was fantastic. That kind of happened really when they did Sex in the City, the movie. It was good, but it was nothing as like as good as the telly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you don't want to taint what what was fantastic before. You know, you want you want to make sure that it stays as this yeah. kind of precious series that everyone absolutely loved and brought them, you know, a lot of nostalgia and, and to a time in their life. If, I think if you revisit it, you can have the trouble of kind of almost ruining the original series and you don't want that. So, mm. yeah, I think including the table reads and the reunion and then revisiting the set, I think all of that was lovely. Because, yeah. I mean... It was know, well set up, two hours, and it was an interview conducted on a recreation of the original set. So that, And I think they all sat in their original positions, too, at points in, the, in, the, in it. You know, they all had their own favourite chair, their favourite spot. Yeah, no, completely. And you know what? You can even kind of tell from them as well how emotional it was to, to revisit the set and to come back to, you know, an area that was just so prominent in their life for so long because I even think they were saying that it's been 17 years since um, since the series aired so it's been over it's been over for as twice as long as it lasted so I mean the time that has passed has been crazy but it's still just such a 
major yeah. part in so many people's lives and it's still on TV the whole time. We kind of revealed as well, or we learned, didn't we, that they used to change the script based on the audience reaction. Yeah, completely. Yeah, man, that's mad like. I mean, the Monica, yes. the whole Monica and Chandler thing, that, that caused several times, they tear, tore the script up several times. Yeah, which I think is is almost a fantastic thing for viewers to learn because it just goes to show how much of an integral part they were in the show and making the show perfect for them. So I think I think that was I think that was great to see and I think we got loads of little insights like that into the show. You know, we found out that Jennifer Aniston and David Trimmer actually had feelings for each other in real life, which fans absolutely adored to hear because I mean Ross and Rachel were just two iconic characters on the show. So hearing that they actually had crushes on each other in real life, fans absolutely went wild for that. Like, what what I often found about super fans and one or two people that know were like they actually believed these were real people. Like there, there was no such thing as them being being Jen, and it, it was Ross and Rachel. Like they had, they believed entirely in this fantasy world. Yeah, yeah, but it just it just goes to show you get so captivated in a show that you just believe that the show is like that that is being set in New York right now that that's currently happening and that this is real life. You just get you get so engrossed in it. It's 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 fab, it's a fabulous thing that can happen because it just goes to show how important it can be in your life. I just I love it. Yeah, I really really thought it was great. I actually thought James Corden did a great job as well. I know there were people were kind of you know there was mixed opinions on whether I'm not, I'm not his biggest fan to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and I know there was very mixed opinions on whether or not he was well cast to be the presenter. I know that he's involved in the production company, which put the whole reunion on air. So I, I suppose he was just a good shoe in to have yeah. as in the role because of the fact that you know he was working with the company that are putting it all together. Um, he was an easy call, but yeah. yeah, I know there is mixed opinions. Uh, I, I haven't sport. sat down to watch it in full. Mags is telling us on Twitter she's already seen it three times. There's probably tablets you can take, Mags, if that's if that's where, where <laughs> you are. But what what I have seen is the clips. It's very very funny. They're naturally yeah. funny together as a group. Which that answered a strange question for me. In that, like, okay you were in a comedy show and you were being funny to a script and to cues and that's all good. But they're na- they were naturally funny together as a group. They were. And you've probably seen on Twitter as well that people were saying, you can tell by their dynamic that they are an actual group of friends. Now, granted, they said they haven't all been in the same room as each other since one other time over the past 17 years, which they didn't disclose. But they said that we are so close. We might not see each other the whole time, but we are very close. And you can tell that chemistry and that dynamic that they are mm. hilarious. They are a group of people that just get on so well, that were cast so perfectly for <laughs> these roles <laughs> that it just, it, it came through the TV. And that all, we all have, at least I hope we all have, because I know it personally, know how precious it is. We all have a friendship like that or two in our lives. You mightn't see the person for months or years and the minute you're together again, it just takes off like it never, like there was never a, a time involved, and and you can see that. Now they talked as well about the the final scene, and I can remember people I know who were big fans, like people were weeping. Yeah, <laughs> and with I the know. filming of the final scene, that was a big drama. It was a big drama, and I think with any series, if it if it's if it's curtains down and something is ending, it's just so absolutely emotional. You know, it was emotional for for them, it was emotional for 
viewers and it's it's something that even when you go back to watch years later even though the show has ended it still brings up that emotion because you remember what it was like watching it for for the final time the, for the first time and it just it brings back all that emotion and i think the reunion really captivated those emotions that we had in the final episodes those emotions we had when there was heartbreak when there was moments of joy all of that throughout the whole uh, 10 seasons and yeah i think we had over it was nearly 236 episodes of friends overall which is just absolutely is that many? crazy yeah yeah Crikey. I know, it's mad, it's mad. But, um, and yeah, that was in the time, when you think about it, Denise, well, not towards the end, but at the start of it, that was around the time, like, pre-binging. You waited for the next week. Yeah, you waited. It was 1994 when it when it first started in September. And I mean, you know, you, you were waiting for the episode. And, you know, once you got the episode, you watched it, and then you'd wait for the next one. Like you were saying, you weren't getting a whole season dropped on Netflix or a streaming service, you know, there was none of that. Mm. And when it did drop, because it was on Netflix, I don't know if it still is, but it, it was on Netflix. When it did drop, Netflix nearly blew up. Yeah, completely. And you know what, that's the, the funny thing as well. They were saying that with a reunion show, you know, nearly everything that they can tell us are things that super fans know already because, you know, the seasons have been on Netflix. They were on the TV. People have watched everything to do with them. They're an encyclopedia of knowledge about friends. Yet when they're all back together again, we just even if they're telling the same stories, we want to hear those stories again because we just love the show yeah. so much. It's 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 lovely. There was bloopers as well and we got to see them. Yeah. Yeah. The bloopers you know what the bloopers kind of made it as well. The bloopers were one of my favourite parts of it is just getting to see just all the things that have gone wrong, could go wrong, would go wrong. And I think that made the reunion so special as well. I think the only part really of it that I didn't like was the celebrity cameos. I kind of found them a bit unnecessary, you know, right. having the likes of David Beckham and BTS on to just basically say, to basically say, sorry, oh, the show was great. I liked XYZ episode. I don't know. I just think that part of it was a little bit irrelevant, you know, because of the fact they were never in the show to begin with. Do we need celebrities coming on to say that they enjoyed the show too? Who knows? But well, you um, see, the, some people need to be relevant by turning up at a big TV show. Totally, totally, you and know, I'm sure they got paid well for it. As very well, you know, actually, as did they? Did, did the did the the cast get extremely well paid for this? Oh, they did. Yeah, they got between two point five and three million dollars each, as reported by the Hollywood Reporter. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just sit down and have a chat. We're in the wrong job. I know. Honestly, we really are. Well, will you watch it again? Yeah, mm. I think I will. I, I think I will, yeah. You know, the first time I was watching it, I was kind of taking notes because I know I was going to have to report on it and things like that. So maybe I'll watch it for pleasure again and see uh, what I think of it. There are parts that I know I'm not going to like again, like the whole celebrity parts. And they did a, a Friends runway as well where they had Justin Bieber and Cindy Crawford and the likes kind of walking out in old outfits mm. that were in the Friends season. But... Uh, so that again, I was kind of like, oh, do we need this? But I think I will watch it again. I think mm -hmm. I will. Do I need to? Probably not. But I think I will just for, yeah. for enjoyment. I guess looking back on it too, you, I started by asking whether it would be the forerunner to a movie or, or some new episodes. The problem you'd have is writing something that was seen as funny in 1995 and yeah. trying to write it in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> Could be awkward. Yeah, I think with, with the social media that we have nowadays as well, you know, you're, you'll be able to see too clearly whether or not people were liking it or hating it with this. I feel like back in the day, 
people who liked it were laughing at home alone and they continued to like it without, you know, kind of outside voices telling them whether or not that episode was actually good. Whereas I think now if they were to to reshoot the whole thing and make yeah. a movie or a, a reboot, would it would it land the same way? I yeah. don't know, I think. You'd probably get an awful lot of people doing. doing what we do as well these days, hyper-analysing us to see who can they find who might be offended. I think that would drive me demented. Yeah, and you know for a fact that that would happen. No, it just would. Yeah, all right. Listen, good to talk to you. As always, Denise. Denise Curtin, a digital editor from Stellar Magazine on the Friends Reunion Show. I wasn't an enormous fan, and I haven't seen this thing in full yet, but the clips I've seen, and for me to say it as someone who wasn't a fan, are very, very funny. Very, very funny. And I guess in, in our house, when it was on... I found the one-liners funny. I couldn't take a half an hour of one-liners, and I couldn't, but the one-liners were funny. Would I be tempted to go back and start watching old episodes again after the reunion? Maybe. Maybe. 1850-715-996. Did you watch it? What do you think of it? Were you a fan? Mags says, (laughs) as well as having watched it three times already, she says that there's literally not a day goes by that myself and my husband don't quote... Oh, please, Mags. Don't quote something from friends in our daily lives. It will never get old. Well, I suppose there are people go around quoting Father Ted as well. So, a good show is a good show. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork cream. You guys ready? Watch out, watch out. Drive home weekdays from four on Corks ninety six FM. Hey, it's Lorraine. Make sure to join me weekdays for four hours of the best music mix. I've got the biggest prizes up for grabs. You pick the playlist on the takeover, and there's almost a celebrity or two revealing the unexpected. Every summer I'd be going to the bog and doing turf. I can confirm a tea break at the bog is the best. I'll talk to you weekdays from four. The big drive home. Let's talk business with Ford Lease. Hassle free vehicle leasing. Ford Lease to find out more. The Big Drive Home. On Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96 FM. So coming back to COVID and the reopening and the return to some kind of normality over the next few months all subject to the public health situation remaining stable or as stable as it can be. Starting in June, of course, with hotels open on the 7th, on the 2nd, bars, restaurants on the 7th, cinemas and theatres, gyms and pools, 25 at a wedding, and then into July, the 5th of July, indoor dining in the pubs and restaurants, a few hundred at matches, gym classes can open 50 at weddings. And then on the 19th of July, international travel uh, can get underway again and that is something that will be a game changer for a lot of people no admittedly not all international travel is about holidays some people just want to see their families and they've not been able to see them for ages and some people have had grandchildren for example born and haven't seen them yet and that's heartbreaking for them and they'll get to see them and that's not a holiday that's an essential family trip but when you're talking about a holiday and say a holiday to to somewhere like Lanzarote, which will be one of the most popular places out of Cork, they'll be waiting for people to arrive 
And Julian Fair left Cork ah, four years ago now and uh, is running a couple of businesses in Lanzarote. And he joins me now. Julian, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Depress me first, mate. What kind of a weather is it out there today? Well, not to depress you too much, uh, it's been a cloudy start here, um, PJ, but the sun is making a good effort to come through and we should have it in about half an hour. It should be very, very hot here again. Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the same every day, is it? Julian? Well, yes, it is. The news we have is that international travel can resume all going well from the 19th. Terms and conditions will apply. So, for anybody who is planning to travel out there, like, what's the COVID situation like in Lanzarote as we speak? It is pretty good here at the moment. We're on what we would call a level two, about to drop into level one. So we just, I was calculating, uh, we're about a year out of our initial lockdown. We came out last May. Now, I didn't open up again until mid-December, but we're a year out of us now. Um, so we're nearly back on level one. We would have been back a couple of weeks ago, except we had a small spike in our CC in one of the gyms. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's spread to about 80 people. Now, I know that sounds small in, in your terms, but it's kind of big in, in our terms here mm. with a population of only 150,000 here. Um, so we had a small spike, but they have traced all that, and that was a few weeks ago, so that has dropped down. The current numbers, I didn't get them yet before I came on the radio this morning, but we are down um, a count around the 180 mark for us at the moment. That's so active cases. That is yeah. very good of active cases, yeah. I don't think there's any in hospital at the moment, from what I gather. Right. And um, if there is, they're certainly not in the ICU. Right. Um, and have you got so vaccines yes, we, we yet, Julian? We have. I haven't been done yet, but they are in their 50s at the moment, current people. One of my staff here is in their 40s, which is actually called last week, surprisingly, and she got hers done. Um, so I would expect my vaccine to be ready in, in the next four to six weeks. Yeah. But yeah, they're in the early 50s at the moment here. Now look, you'll be ready and waiting for us all to arrive. Will there be T's and C's? I mean, are the... And obviously it's, it's, it's Spanish territory, but it has its own independent government and is outside the EU. Do you know that yeah. what limits will it play? Like, will people have to have a vaccine to visit? Uh, currently, you, you need a vaccine or a PCR test to, to, to come in. And um, to come into the, to come into the Canaries. So yesterday there was a meeting, and they 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 put this into law that if you're vaccinated, you don't need any tests coming into the Canary Islands, but you will need a PCR test coming in if you don't have a vaccine at the moment. But you are very welcome. Yeah. And what's open, or what will be open? Well, there. There has been very restricted stuff open um, up until now, but you see a lot of businesses were currently getting two other businesses ready to open. We have Finnegan's is still open, has managed to stay open. Our other place in our CC, we opened a couple of weeks ago and the other two were getting ready to open at a staged um, a staged opening um, considering what we're going to come, what, how many tourists are going to come back to us next month and the month after. Yeah. Um, so there is a lot of places getting ready to open. The hotel in front of me, I think, has June the 28th on it. There's various stages. People are being cautious. Yeah because the UK will be coming back to us probably first. So we're just kind of waiting with base of breath to see how many planes are starting to come in over the next few weeks. Yeah, and, and I suppose they will be very, very cautious and very careful because you got to the situation that you are in by being that cautious and that careful. What about yes. indoors versus outdoors? Do you still have a mask mandate indoors and stuff like that? 
We do at the moment. Currently, the mask is still in full operation anywhere outdoors here walking around. Oh, really? Um, yes, it's true. Yes, absolutely. And that has been the way for a long while here. Um, now, if you're sunbathing on the beach or by the pool, you don't need a mask on. Now, they do say if you get up to walk around, you need to put the mask back on. Those restrictions will be current. Um, they're talking about lifting them gradually over the next few weeks. That. <laughs> You know, um, as long as you're kind of you have your your social distancing going on, that the mask will 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 be um, have to that it can come off. No, they haven't done it yet, but they're just cautious still at the yeah. moment on that one, which I think is right. I am. And how strict are they about the implementing moment. it, Julian? Absolutely, very strict here. Absolutely, big fines, lots of fines being handed out. There's no. I even got one myself when I mistakenly walked off the beach last year by accident completely. Um, walked, um, we were going up to some uh, water sports place. I walked straight in. I walked straight into the Gardaí Bill and I was fined. It didn't matter what excuse I had. And I'm, I'm, a, so, I'm a believer in wearing them. And, I'm and, and you live there. And you, you live and, and work I there. Live there. And they find me, yeah. yeah so no, so no, you walked no, off the beach here. and forgot to put on your mask as you walked off the beach. And walk straight yeah, into a copper. And, into the, uh, and, and how much was the fine? Yeah, yeah. 60 euros. Wow. Anybody will get it here. And they are, are, they are enforcing it here. Now, as I said, those rules are set to be relaxed shortly, yeah. but I don't have a date on I think it. The, I mean, yeah, I know, but I, I think the solid warning there, so Julian, is anybody who's coming, who plans to come after we can travel, like if there are rules, observe them because they will enforce I, them. Absolutely. And you know what? The bar owners and everybody enforces stuff here anyway. We all have to. And we always have done because it's our livelihood. It's trying to get to this point. And it's so quiet here at the moment. This is the worst it's ever been. We always knew this, these three or four weeks before things start to get better yeah. was always going to be our hardest affected here. And we have to enforce the rules ourselves here. Now, when you're sitting down outside uh, in a restaurant, you don't have to wear your mask when you're sitting around the table with your friends. But if you do get up to go to the toilet, you know, we do insist that you put them on again. Um, but you know what I mean? We're quite relaxed. There's and no, can you no, stand at a bar no, yet? Can you sit at a bar? No. 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 You, well, you can stand inside and that kind of thing. You can have a certain, I think it's only two or three allowed on the bar counter. But that's not a huge thing done here anyway, you know. No, it's not, to be fair. so much more table service and it is a lot more outdoor yeah. service. And, and yeah. lastly, the bit of music of an evening and is there a curfew? There is no curfew at the moment. That got abolished. Um, but the bars are closing at 12 o'clock at the moment. But you know what? There's no harm. That's it's kind of average in most parts of Lanzani, isn't it? I mean, Matagorda, Puchillos. You know, that was nearly always 12 yeah. o'clock anyway. Yeah, we would always be kind of closed around 12 this year at the latest anyway. You know, um, but, you know, a lot of bars would stay open. But at the moment, because of the lack of people, there's no need for, the, for any of them to stay open. Now, the majority of them don't even go near 12 o'clock. I don't. I'm closed here most days till at six o'clock. So Saturday, I'm open till about ten o'clock because I do a bit of live music. Nice. Um, at seven, but you know that that lift as we go along. But right. indeed, there's not enough business to stay open days here. All right. And there is live music here in bars. Yeah, that's all going ahead. Yeah, that has been for months. All right. Okay. Well, everyone will be welcoming the Irish back, and I think a lot of people d- dying to get back. But I think what we learned today, Julian, and good to talk to you again. And I hope I'll see you in 2022. Yeah. I don't think it'll be this year, but I'll definitely see you at some stage in 2022, mate. Definitely. We'd lo- I'd love to catch up. We're long definitely. overdue a pint. We're long overdue. We are, absolutely. <laughs> All right, lad. Take care. See you again. All right. Cheers. That's Julian Fair, formerly of the Rochestown Inn.
and now out in Lanzarote with the last few years running a couple of businesses. There's something. And again, let's come back to this thing about the longest and the strictest lockdown in It wasn't. Absolutely no way was it. Like, there's a guy who lives there, right, and walked off a beach and forgot to put his mask on walking off the beach and he was no sooner off the beach without his mask than the Guardia Seville, the local coppers, uh, Senor, 60 euro. Now, I don't think that happened to anybody around here. So, again, another sort of uh, no, it wasn't response for anyone who said we had the longest, hardest lockdown. So, they're open, or opening. Uh, there are still some restrictions, but you will need either a vaccine or a clear PCR to get in. 1850 Thanks, Julian. Uh, silly question. There are no silly questions. They'll never be afraid of asking a question. Silly question. Do kids over a certain age need a negative test before they get on a plane? I don't actually know the answer to that. It's something we'll try to clarify. Uh, I know where people are coming from. They're wondering about uh, should we... Is it okay to be PCR testing six, seven and eight-year-olds? Is that going to be happening? I don't know is the answer, but we can try and clarify that. So go back to the story that lit up Twitter and every other platform last weekend and was international news for Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of last week. And that was the story of the Ryanair flight from Athens to Vilnius, which was forced to land in Belarus. And a man called Roman Protasevich was taken off that plane and arrested. And it's an international incident. Uh, very grave international incident. And of course, it's led to a much attention yet again on the Belarusian regime led by Alexander Lushenko or Lukashenko. Um, dictator, uh, described as a dictator. Uh, Daria Verbitskaya. Daria, good morning to you. Good morning, everyone. You're organising, subject to the approval of the guards, a demo in Cork this Saturday. Why? Uh, Yeah, there is a plan to organise a protest um, tomorrow um, just to spread awareness and uh, even to spread awareness a bit more um, of what is actually has been happening in Belarus since August last year, just to give kind of a little reminder um, what actually started back then and what's kind of been going on. And so there is a huge opposition movement uh, demanding new democratic leadership and economic reform. But the and the opposition movement um, and Western government say that. And at this stage, like everyone is actually convinced that Mr. Lukashenko rigged the 9th of August election. Mm. So uh, on the paper, it did say that he won the election. But since then, there has been a huge police crackdown, um, has curbed the street uh, protests and sent sent, uh, opposition leaders to prison and uh, into exile. Just going to, to give you um, a rough number, about 35,000 people have been detained since August 2020. Wow. So um, it all started back then, but it has never stopped. It has been going on. So um, 
we would like to kind of, you know, uh, to organise a, a protest and uh, just to bring awareness. But in the um, sight of the events that happened on uh, Sunday, um, it actually brought back all the situation in Belarus, you know, inter mm. international level and yeah. on the international media. I think people were very but, shocked, Daria, that an international flight could be deliberately diverted, forced to land by what we understand was a military jet and a man taken off it. And I think his girlfriend was arrested as well. And no one knows what's happened to him since. Like it, it, it paints Belarusia as, as, a very, or as a very dark place to be living at the moment. To say that uh, we were all in shock, I would say just kind of probably to say nothing because like at the beginning when the news started kind of spreading around and we were following mostly kind of Russian uh, speaking uh, media, we had, at some point people actually thought that it was a joke, you know, um, and then when actually it was proved that that was the reality, people could not believe that this is something that was happening. Like, it is considered to be an act of the state terrorism. And it just, once again, it just proves um, the total uh, totalitarian regime in the country. It's just another proof. And it's another proof of a breach of international law and uh, the fact that foreign citizens and their lives have been put in danger it's it's not acceptable in the 21st century. This is, this is effectively a hijacking of a, of, a, of a civilian aircraft. It is. It is considered to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is yeah. a total hijacking. Uh, Tell me a little bit about yeah. Lukashenko, Dario. I mean, he's been, he's been in power for a very long time and it is widely believed and acknowledged now that there was something very suspicious about that election result last year. And his, his main opponent is someone, I think, who learned English in County Tipperary. So there's a strong Irish connection here. Um, tell us a bit about him. So uh, Lukashenko, he got into power in 1994. And um, he has always been um, a big supportive person of um, the Soviet kind of Soviet way of living. And um, he was always kind of supporting that politics. And he always wanted to be uh, very close to Russia and anyway closer to Russia than to the Western world. So since he started his... um, uh, way of uh, running the country uh, since 1994, um, it all changed completely. Like flag has been changed. Uh, it was only commonly uh, known Russian language. Belarusian language was completely removed. Um, so since 1994, he has been building his power. And um, by now, after 26 years, he has been able to um, build the force you know, the the proper force that is supporting him these days and that truly believes that he's completely right and he can do nothing wrong. And whoever is trying to express their opinion, which is different to his opinion or is different to uh, people who support him, because there are still people who um, support Lukashenko, they they are all convinced that these people are all paid by the Western Gotcha. You know, society, and uh, it's uh, just being given. Like whatever is happening these days in Belarus, like it seems that Europe has see, has not seen it in the last forty years. Okay, it's it's the worst time. 
Daria, I know that yeah. the uh, demo that you want to have, and you're, it's important to point out, you won't do this unless the guards say it's okay. So you're waiting for approval, yeah. correct? We are waiting for the approval. Yep, correct. Perfect. Yep. All right. Okay. Thank you for that. That's Daria Verbitskaya uh, organizing, if she can, uh, a demo against the Lukashenko regime uh, in Cork. Uh, tomorrow, uh, protesting against the arrest of Roman Protesevich and the land, forced landing of the Ryanair plane last weekend. But before anyone starts jumping up and down about um, gatherings not being allowed in a time of COVID, she's going to see can she get gather permission and she won't have it without that, which is very responsible indeed. 1850 Let us go to our Friday Cork versus COVID feature with our senior news reporter Fiona Corcoran. We looked at festivals a few weeks ago and as Cork, Cork versus Covid continues Fiona has been looking again at festivals and, and how we're coping with festivals in the second year of this pandemic. Last year saw the cancellation of many of the much-loved festivals in Cork, but this year they're back, just in different formats. The Fastnet Film Festival brings thousands of visitors from around the world to West Cork every year. We estimate it brings in just under two million spend in the area, which is huge and so crucial to the survival of this area or this part of the country. Mm. So it's been sorely missed certainly last year and this year. While we still have a festival and we still have the expense of running a festival, we don't have the payback in terms of people being on the ground. The festival kicked off last Wednesday and 350 short films will be shown before the close of business on Sunday. The events are all online. Festival director Hilary McCarthy says they probably could have had live audiences if they pushed the date out. But we decided that we would keep our dates because people are used to us always having it at the end of May. We chose the end of May because it's the shoulder season for the summer. So it sort of kickstarts the tourist season here in Skull and West Cork. The Cork Harbour Festival had its official launch this week with events running from June 4th to the 14th. Manager Joya Kuhn says these events will be smaller in size than other years. We might have a small seaweed gathering walk down uh, East Cork side. Um, there might be a small group of people doing a kayak or South River cleanup. Um, you know, those kind of small things can go ahead. They're participatory. They won't attract a crowd. They've also come up with ways that people from around the world can participate. People will row or paddle five miles wherever they are in the whole wide world and then submit their time to us and join an online celebration. We've got over 600 people signed up from across the world, places as far as Australia, New Zealand and um, the US. Similarly, the Cork Midsummer Festival is going ahead in June with some shows performed in front of small audiences. Director Lorraine May says it's been a major challenge. It's a totally different way to plan a festival because you're doing everything from your kitchen table um, with, you know, just on Zoom and that's very unusual. You would normally be meeting artists, we'd normally be out and about. You know, that, that has definitely been challenging and, you know, trying to communicate as a team and, you know, just keeping that information flow, I think, is one of the more, more challenging bit. And obviously Obviously, with all the keeping everyone safe, um, the COVID compliance, you know, all the all the guidelines, we need to do a lot around that as well. She hopes to bring some of these new ideas to future festivals. Artists have been really brilliant at recreating, let's say, theatre, for example, just giving that essence of theatre 
online and having that sort of theatrical experience. So I think it's also uh, meant that things have been more accessible to people as well and audiences that wouldn't normally be able to come to the festival or go to events. So I think some element of that will stay. I think this idea of a hybrid performance where you have some live and some online element, I think that will stay. And I also love this idea of bringing events directly into communities um, and having that happen as opposed to, you know, yes, you have your cultural spaces that everyone gathers around, but also you have these experiences that come to you as well. So I think we'll hold on to some of that. That's our latest Cork versus COVID feature. Thank you, Fiona Corcoran, looking again at festivals. 1850 To finish today, is a major fundraising effort underway at the moment for Special Olympics Ireland. And the people of Cork are being asked to help. Uh, it's a big fundraising campaign, Collection Day, they call it. And the funds are needed to continue the support of seven... 1,300 and odd children and adults across the country who live with an intellectual disability. And it's a virtual event for the second year running. But I'm joined by Dennis O'Gorman from Fair Hill. Dennis is a marathon walker and has walked, uh, this, with this weekend will be walking his 140th marathon walk for the Special Olympics. Good morning, Dennis. Morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Now, this will be your 140th marathon walk. When did you start doing them first? I started in 1920. 19, uh, I started on 2020. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I started off with a uh, Cork missing person. I fundraised in mid-1920 for them. Good man. Good man. And then, then I went down for Special Olympics. I started the last year for, for Special Olympics as well. And um, for under under training there, we said Norma Thompson and Deborah McCardle gave me the idea to do it. Right. Okay. Yeah, for, for health reasons, my health. Yes, your mental health and physical health. And what, yeah. have you, what have you enjoyed about it most, Dennis? Most of it is like meeting people, walking, walking, meeting friends and uh, people going around. Going walking around the place. Yeah, you like places like the marina. Marina, yeah, the marina. I like places around the marina and places like that. Yeah. Passing back rock castles and places like that. Good man. Now you've been involved in Special Olympics since two thousand and seven through through basketball. You love basketball. Yeah, I love basketball. But I was involved in in in, in nineteen eighty four. It was my first time I played basketball. I was co foundation basketball club. Right. And then I was the European Games in 1985. I won a gold medal in the European Games in 1985. Brilliant. And, 19, and then it was in 1987, I won the World Games, a gold medal in Indiana, South Bend. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. And you the went World to Games. the Special Olympics World Games in 2019. That was in Abu Dhabi. What was that like? Yeah, that was brilliant. That was outstanding. And I was a table official. Okay. Basketball table official over there. Right, right. And uh, my my mentor was uh, Ronan Offlin. Okay. From Dublin. Okay. Okay. You're yeah. good. You're, you're, you're good. Standing and we had a few parties. We we met Dennis O'Brien and the ambassador to Ireland. Right. Okay. Yeah. You had a great time out there. Great time. Yeah. 
When when you get back to training, Dennis, what are you looking forward to most? I'm looking forward to meet friends and and being official to to core coaching with them as well to help help out the coach. You know what I got out of it. Yeah, good man. Because you've got a lot out of it. Yeah, I got a lot out of it. Yeah, thirty seven years. Good lad. Involved. Started good off when I was seventeen. Good lad. Now, would you advise other people to advise join people a special involved, yeah. Olympic? Yeah. I would, yeah, because it's me friends and different places and different uh, countries and stuff like that. Yeah, because you've been around yeah. the world and it keeps you very fit as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it keeps you very fit as well, yeah. All right, well, Dennis, good luck with the, with the, uh, the latest. Of course, of course, yeah. If there's any coaches out there for Core Foundation or looking for basketball coaches right. and a club, if they want to take over a club, okay. if they're looking for players and stuff like that, it'd be great if we can do that as well. Well, Dennis, you... And what started off was my late friend, Thomas Riley. Okay. Yeah, he passed away. Cockness and Parsons, that's why he did it for Cockness and Parsons. Okay. Okay. All right. Dennis, listen, thank you, and I'm sorry for the loss of your friend. I really appreciate you being with us here. That's Dennis O'Gorman, Special Olympics fundraiser and marathon walker and basketball player. Uh, you can donate to his appeal by going can'tstopnow.ie. That's the web. Can'tstopnow.ie. You'll find the details of his fundraiser there.